This is the APS China Quarterly, April 2020. Death to China by Wang Kakoi. Birth of a Star. Peter Navarro shot to fame in 2011 after publishing his polemic heavy book, Death by China, which appears to have found some resonance with U.S. President Donald Trump, who appointed Navarro as White House trade advisor, essentially Trump's key trade advisor. That may explain the U.S. waging economic war to destroy China's technological advancement and her economy with hard-hitting tactics, fair or unfair, practical or impractical. Navarro's book has been brought to life. Is Death to China, which seems to be the overarching goal of Navarro and the China Hawks, really a realistic goal in today's interconnected world? His book trotted out a litany of sins and crimes committed by China and Chinese against the U.S., with other nations sometimes also bearing some blame for America's job losses in the manufacturing industries as well as other socioeconomic ills. His anti-China and anti-trade views are also shared by Steve Bannon, the former White House chief strategist and chairman of the Trump 2016 presidential campaign, as well as sitting Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, Vice President Mike Pence, Chief Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, Senator Marco Rubio, and many others. Can he succeed? Will he succeed? This note will examine and analyze the implications of full-fledged economic war, according to Navarro's script, on both China and U.S. industries. We will also take a slightly deeper dive into the U.S. semiconductor industry, Apple Incorporated, and Huawei. They are respectively the number one U.S. export to China, a representation of many large U.S. companies that have almost all of their products assembled in China, and the number one target of American anti-Chinese strategies and tactics. Semiconductors, U.S.'s number one industry. Leading U.S. semicon companies' exports to China range from 24% to 67%, as shown in Exhibit 1. Unlike other industries, losing their sales in China can be fatal for many of them because of the capital-intensive nature of the industry and China's dominant share of high-tech manufacturing output. The thinking of Navarro and his allies at one time was to ban all U.S. semicon exports to China so that they can choke and maim China's tech industries. Although such a strategy looks wonderful on paper, it would put half the semicon companies out of business within three years. The rest would be left without any funds for R&D and new capex, which would also eventually push them into an existential crisis, which Japanese firms faced in the 1990s. Sensing grave danger, CEOs of U.S. semicon companies rushed to Washington, D.C. last year and successfully argued that even if they don't sell to China, other non-U.S. companies will. Navarro and his allies had to reverse their apparently not-so-well-thought-through strategy. Even Trump realized that cutting off your nose to spite your face would not be in the interest of America. This U.S. strategy has made China realize that they had made a strategic error in the past by not investing enough in semiconductor capabilities. China's strategy has since dramatically changed. Apple, the U.S. icon. 
Tim Cook is the mastermind of Apple's manufacturing strategy of having all its products assembled in China. For this successful strategy behind Apple's USD 40 to 60 billion of profits a year, he was named the successor to the company's late CEO Steve Jobs. But Navarro has thrown a spanner in Cook's strategy, which must have given him sleepless nights. Is it a surprise that Cook has to visit Washington, D.C. regularly and even dine with President Trump? To Navarro, forcing their tech icon Apple to build factories in the U.S. might create about 2 million jobs, which would please his boss. To Cook, such a strategy would weaken its competitiveness because its products would become more expensive relative to Samsung and the Chinese handset makers. That's provided it can be done. A smartphone has components supplied by hundreds of disparate suppliers. For instance, Apple sources components from more than 700 different suppliers, with 40% to 50% of them from China. Not that it can't be done, but it will take 5 to 10 years. Even if it can be done, how long will it take for US-made handsets to be of the same quality and be as price competitive? Besides dealing with Navarro's anti-China strategy, Cook has two other problems to worry about. This China bashing and anti-China sentiment in Washington has rallied Chinese consumers behind their own nation's products. Hence, 2019 iPhone sales in China declined 10% year-over-year, with most of that lost sales going to Huawei. For its 2018 holiday quarter, Apple took in USD 13.2 billion in Greater China, down from nearly USD 18 billion a year ago. But Cook's untold and bigger worry is not the Chinese consumer turning hostile towards Apple, but the Chinese worker turning nationalistic in an ugly economic war. They may not show up for work at Foxconn factories. Worker strikes have been uncommon in recent decades, but China's history is littered with labor movements, protests, and strikes such as the anti-imperialist May 30th movement in the middle of the Republic of China period. If the Sino-U.S. economic war were to spin out of control, Cook would lose real sleep because Chinese workers can be exhorted in social media not to show up for work in all Foxconn factories, and it could take hold in a matter of days. In the world of social media, even massive labor movements can be organized within hours. If this worst-case scenario were to unfold, Apple would go belly-up very quickly because it is not possible for the company to come up with an alternative plan, not even in three years. Keep in mind, Apple produces nothing in the U.S. and has no experience running factories. So far... The Chinese have exercised restraint because they believe they can sort out their economic differences with the U.S. But with the Trump administration going all out to fix China, this worst-case scenario must not be completely ruled out. This is a Trump card the Chinese know they can play against Trump one day. Huawei, China's pride Huawei is the pride of China and her people. The 2019 American plot to kill Huawei was a watershed in the Sino-U.S. economic war, where a tit-for-tat strategy was adopted by both countries until the Phase 1 truce of mid-January 2020. 
that bungled effort to kill off one of China's iconic companies and force China to abandon its industrialization program is partly rooted in the worldview espoused in Navarro's Death to China. From about two years ago, Huawei formed teams in the company to devise a plan B for all the things they do. APS understands that they already had sensed two years ago that Washington, D.C. would go out to decimate the company. They could not allow a Chinese company to dominate the world of 5G. The advantages their institutions like the NSA, FBI, and CIA have had for decades would vanish. To the Americans, it is just not acceptable. According to a senior management executive at Huawei, it will be able to source every component for their base stations and smartphones by the middle of 2020 from non-U.S. suppliers. However, they would still like to use some U.S. components, especially IC chipsets, because those are more advanced. The company has given up all hope for the U.S. market and has stopped even looking at the market. Huawei's annual sales in the U.S. are barely a fifth of its nearly USD 2 billion of sales in the Philippines. Meanwhile, Ericsson's 5G equipment cost triple that of Huawei's. By mobilizing state power and coercing its allies to join its plot to choke and kill off Huawei in 2019, Navarro, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, and their other hawkish colleagues might have made yet another miscalculation. Such a hostile action not only spurred Huawei and other Chinese tech companies to steepen their trajectories of technological advancement, but would also conjure images of their painful past. All the past goodwill former U.S. presidents have carefully forged and built up with China has been frittered away by Trump's administration. One influential Chinese business executive told APS that, We don't trust the U.S. anymore. The prevailing thinking in D.C. seems hell-bent on stopping China's ascendancy before it is too late. They want to unravel the global supply chain ecosystem that brings thousands of complex components together, allowing iPhones and gasoline direct injection vehicle engines to be built at acceptable costs. Navarro may or may not know that many U.S. companies are huge beneficiaries of this arrangement. While Apple has made USD 40 to 60 billion a year, Honhai makes less than a tenth of Apple, and Apple's business does not even make up half of the company's revenue. Disentangling the current supply ecosystem would take years, especially the electronics, pharmaceuticals, or automobile industries. These products require heavy capital expenditure in equipment as well as research and development spread over time periods that can exceed a decade. It is understandable that the China hawks want to ensure that China can never challenge America's global supremacy and dominance in advanced technologies. Which country or company would like its global dominance eroded away? However, try as they might to derail China's rise as a technologically advanced economic superpower with leadership in areas like 5G communications, all they can do is slow down the inevitable. China can deploy USD 3 trillion of reserves, wisely utilize its 6 million fresh STEM graduates a year, entice its foreign-based engineering talent to return home, plus use its huge and still-growing domestic market to overcome the barriers erected by the U.S. We would describe China's tech development as a long-term upward-sloping curve whose gradient would moderate due to this economic war, 
but its climb is inexorable, even if America tosses everything plus the kitchen sink into the works. Don't push China too hard. President Xi Jinping and China's chief negotiator, Liu He, made a very well-publicized visit to a rare earths facility in Ganzhou last May, telegraphing their plan of limiting exports of this key material for high-tech manufacturing as a retaliatory measure when Sino-U.S. tensions were running high. In 2010, Beijing cut off the exports to Japan amid a maritime dispute that saw a Chinese boat captain detained by Japan. The captain was immediately released in what the New York Times described at the time as a concession that appeared to mark a humiliating retreat in a Pacific test of wills. Macau casinos operated by U.S. companies will face the huge risk of disqualification for even bidding for the new licenses when their existing licenses expire in 2022, if Chinese authorities go through past practices with a fine-tooth comb and adhere strictly to their regulatory framework. Kazuo Okada, a Japanese billionaire who was once a 20% shareholder in Wynn Resorts, alleged that Wynn Resorts had been involved in bribing the Macau government by making a donation to the University of Macau worth USD $135 million. It was part of a complex deal where Wynn got approval to issue a secondary license to another casino operator for USD $900 million. The USD $135 million was supposedly equivalent to the capital gains tax on USD $900 million. We wonder if the China Hawks consulted American business leaders before they embarked on this bid for Western Bloc technological self-sufficiency that excludes China, while allowing the Japanese and Koreans to know their place and play their parts. Shoot David Ricardo Should the offshoring of manufacturing progress in earnest, China will have to deal with a spike in frictional unemployment as workers are retrained and redeployed, while China's GDP takes a hit. While all sides will suffer if the economic war escalates, the Chinese have already been eschewing low-value-added labor-intensive manufacturing in the past decade, with more and more shoes, caps, and jackets being made in Vietnam, Indonesia, or Bangladesh. In that same period, the importance of China as a market for cars, smartphones, and commercial aircraft has grown. The Chinese do not sell much high-value-added goods into the U.S., with Huawei, for instance, deriving less than 0.5% of its revenue from the U.S. As an aside, products from China can round-trip via other countries to eventually end up in the U.S., adding some local content along the way before sending it off to the U.S., Japan had used this playbook when faced with U.S. pressure. Chinese policymakers have belatedly realized that they were mistaken in thinking that they have the luxury to develop their semiconductor capabilities at their own pace, while relying on U.S. components in the meantime. China imported almost USD 200 billion of semiconductors in 2018. This notion of David Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage held by Beijing policymakers until recently had been completely expunged. Beijing will now have to adopt the Korean and Taiwanese model of pumping in huge amounts of capital year after year to wean China off its dependence on the U.S. Unforeseen Consequences and COVID-19 During the early days of COVID-19, 
Hyundai Motor had to shut all their factories in Korea, and Nissan shut a plant in January when some components were not forthcoming. The COVID-19 pandemic has taught us one lesson. The world today is very connected. To unravel it would not make sense. U.S.-Chinese collaboration against infectious disease proved immensely effective in the past, and one of its greatest champions was George W. Bush, wrote The Atlantic. When SARS hit southern China in late 2002, the U.S. CDC under the Bush administration sent 40 experts, under the auspices of the World Health Organization, to assist China in battling SARS. SARS was largely contained to Asia. Only 27 Americans were infected. None died. The number of U.S. government employees working on public health in China grew dramatically, with some CDC officials even given offices inside their Chinese counterpart. By Barack Obama's second term, the U.S. and China were expanding this public health cooperation to the rest of the world. When Ebola hit West Africa in 2014, American and Chinese personnel worked together at a Chinese-built laboratory in Sierra Leone and offloaded supplies from a Chinese transport plane in Liberia. As the Carter Center has noted, many of the health experts whom China dispatched to fight Ebola had been trained by the Americans whom the Bush administration had sent to Beijing a decade earlier, according to The Atlantic. Since Trump took office, Both the CDC and the National Institutes of Health have reduced their staff in Beijing. The National Science Foundation has shut its offices in the country entirely. The sentiment inside the Trump administration, according to The Atlantic, is that if you have collaborative research with Chinese scientists, you're helping China to build their capacity, and that's not good for the U.S., because China is a strategic competitor. This hard decoupling on public health matters almost certainly undermined the U.S. government's initial understanding of COVID-19. The Atlantic underlined the point that while the U.S. must cooperate more deeply with China, America will be less able than in the past to dictate the terms of that cooperation. While Trump, Navarro, and other China hawks may find this painful, but them trying to fight this may well cost more American deaths. Chinese scientists may create the first COVID-19 vaccine, as was the case with H7N9 in 2013. Distributing vaccines quickly across borders is far safer for ordinary Americans, unhindered by trade barriers and hoarding. But that requires Sino-U.S. cooperation, which Trump's anti-Chinese stance complicates. The Trump administration's tariffs on almost USD 5 billion of Chinese medical products also makes America an unreliable market, creating perverse incentives for Chinese medical suppliers to make American customers their last choice. In a strange twist of fate, the US now needs China's expertise and experience to combat and contain the coronavirus. Trump even had to call President Xi Jinping a few days ago and have a conversation on COVID 19. Isn't the world better off collaborating on this and other issues? Ricardo's Last Laugh If narrow national interests were the order of the day, it would take enormous resources and time to untangle globalized supply chains at a steep and punishing price. Without doubt, Apple, the U.S. semicon companies including Micron, American-owned casinos in Macau, 
and many other U.S. companies will face an existential crisis in this eventuality. Needless to say, death to China will also mean death to thyself for America. We can debate which country will bear more pain in the short term, but in the long term, after the painful readjustment, in all likelihood China's industrial prowess, engineering talent, huge continental market, and its mammoth foreign reserves will propel it to rebound before the U.S. stages its own recovery. Sure, China will have to reconfigure and downsize its colossal and efficient supply chain ecosystem, but the U.S. will have to build it from scratch. The consequences would be inconceivable for the world, too. The world will enter a deep and prolonged recession, suffering the return of high inflation, plummeting returns on capital, and rising bankruptcies at the very least. If it ever comes to that, David Ricardo would have the last laugh. Wong Kok Hoi is the founder and CIO of APS Asset Management. He has almost 40 years of investment experience, including CIO at CityTrust Japan, Senior PM at Citibank Hong Kong, and Senior Investment Officer at GIC. He was the recipient of the prestigious Monbushu Scholarship in Japan and graduated with a Bachelor of Commerce Honors degree from Hitosubashi University, 1981. Mr. Wong also completed the Investment Appraisal and Management Program at Harvard University, 1990.